just once again make clear that which most do not seem to understand. This podcast is marked as explicit, not because it offers a mature look into the world of topics not meant for the young or immature, but because it mucks about in very appalling, gormless, and tasteless filth whilst reveling in it. Cinemus Psyops aims to drag you down into the very same muck filled with sexual deviancy and decayed morality. Cinemus Psyops. They heap weekly praise on such filth while discussing the most base and animalistic urges, reviewing the lowest common denominator of low-grade trash ever considered film.
Welcome to the 400th consecutive week of Cinema PsyOps. I'm your host, Court, the guy who cannot believe that we've actually hit 400 consecutive weeks of our lives doing this fucking show. And the person joining me all the way across the city of Omaha, who is also just as flabbergasted that this is now 400 weeks in a row we have produced this show, is my co-host, Matt. Matt. Just feels like we just did episode 399 like a minute ago. Isn't it weird how fast <laughs> everything goes? Right. But when this episode actually gets released, it will be the 400th consecutive week that we have released episodes for these folks. I know. I'm just saying. I know. I'm just saying. It's it's weird. It feels like we just did the other episode like a minute ago, not a week ago. It's just <laughs> crazy. That's all I'm saying. Well, if I'm looking at my clock, I think we did the last episode where we wrapped it up a little under about 11 minutes ago. Okay, man. You can just go with the fucking joke. All right. <laughs> I'm just augmenting it by being a little more factual about it. You don't have to be a fucking dickweed all the time. <laughs> have you met me? Yeah, I know. That's fucking bullshit. Of course, you have to be a dickweed all the time. <laughs> all right. So the question that's probably on your mind is, Court, why did we watch this documentary before I watched all of the films that we're about to watch, right? Yeah. Well, it's a very, very simple thing. I know we talked about how we covered Linda and Abilene and Black Love and some of the other pornographic earlier films of Herschel Gordon-Lewis before he started settling into this more commercial nudie cuties and things like that. But I wanted you to see that he continued to make the exact same level and quality of film the entire time. Like his stuff never looks different. He literally uses the same camera and the same sound equipment for every film. Like he doesn't change it at all. It's all about the budget. Like bring it in as cheap as possible, rake in as much cash as possible, and doing that as quickly and easily as possible. And I didn't I know he did the original two thousand maniacs. <laughs> really, you didn't know that? That's like, I didn't know it. Yeah, I mean, he's really renowned, and, and everybody seems to know him for Blood Feast. But two thousand maniacs is pretty much his masterpiece, which is why it got a remake before any of his other films really did. Yeah. Yeah, and his a lot of, England. Yeah, a lot of his stuff has been remade already actually. Uh, they do they do a great talking about how Hollywood's kind of co-opted the exploitation film. Yeah, and you know what? We're already kind of talking about the doc so we might as well yeah, get into it. We uh, should get into it. I I mean I I love a good documentary. This yeah. is what I'll probably say and watch uh, more because I, I just do. I love a good documentary. <laughs> well, that's absolutely totally fine. Uh, I changed up the format for this week's episode. Uh, as people will kind of remember when I actually did the notes primarily, anytime we covered a documentary, I started doing a thing where I would ask questions and we would just kind of talk around the subjects because we needed to do it that way because, I mean, it's more fascinating to talk about the subject that the documentary is talking about then really review the documentary. So yeah, that's right, just, right. right. And I mean, we're about to cover Herschel Gordon Lewis. This is a sort of a litmus test of whether or not you're going to want to stick around with us for the next 16 weeks after this, because that's the level. They're of going to, they're sticking around. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> 16 weeks. We're going to be doing fucking Herschel Gordon Lewis films. That's insane. I never, I never said it was going to be easy, but they'll stick with us. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Well, let's stop beating around the bush here. Let's just get this episode over with for our sake and their sake and for everybody's sake. So up first, I'm going to play the Legion Patreon ad. And on the Pirate Radio edit for this week, we're going to have the Groovy Ghoulies with Blood Beach because all Herschel Gordon Lewis's career will ever be remembered for is blood. Blood <laughs> and boobs. Right after this. This will keep you quiet. Oh, hi there. I didn't see you. You call me cutting a new show. I'm Bo Ransdell, and I'm one of the many creators you can find on Legion Podcasts. I said quiet! My fellow podcasters and I work hard to bring you the best in horror podcasting, but that comes at a cost. What's that like to live deliciously? Not that, but also, yes. No, what I'm getting at is that there are server costs, costs for good microphones and software for editing... All the things that make our shows, you know, fun to listen to. And you can help. If you're enjoying the shows on legionpodcasts.com or in the Legion Network available on iTunes and Stitcher, just about anywhere you can download a podcast, really, you can help us out and get a little something for your trouble at patreon.com forward slash legionpodcasts. For just two bucks a month, you get a pair of movie commentaries exclusive to Patreon, and for five dollars, you can also join us for a monthly screening of a movie. All of that available on patreon.com forward slash legion podcasts. We appreciate it, and thank you for listening. Now, back to the cutting room. with Blood Beach. The song is like a minute and 17 seconds. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, I love short songs, but man, that one, I just wanted them to go through. I, I would have rather them just repeated the whole song over again a second time and made it about two minutes and 30 seconds. Yeah, but I mean, come on. There's something romantic about a short song. <laughs> I definitely enjoy it. Because sometimes I just don't have the time, Court. All right, so let's go ahead and get started with uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis and The Godfather of Gore is the name of the documentary, which the film opens up with our first clip. Nice. I've often compared Blood Feast to a Walt Whitman poem. It was no good, but it was the first of its kind. And that's exactly what the parallel is between Walt Whitman and Herschel Gordon Lewis. These were movies made just to piss off some people in a way that they couldn't arrest them for yet. There wasn't laws yet. You can't ever say, this is a great Herschel film and this is a bad Herschel film. When you watch a Herschel Gordon Lewis film, you're watching it because it's a Herschel Gordon Lewis film. The degrees of greatness to awfulness are really close together. 
Somebody said your movie was playing all over Georgia. And he goes, are you kidding? All over Georgia? Are you kidding? We didn't even sell Georgia up. What do you mean? Oh, I'm going to call these guys up and like, you know. So we roll into the opening credits right after that. And I noticed Frank Henenlotter is the person who put this together. So I know we're in good hands. I love hearing old style dudes uh, just fucking talk. Uh, and like, that's maybe another reason I like older documentaries. They all talk in like their old fucking old movie speak. <laughs> it's great. It's good stuff for me. Joe Bob is the first actual interview. So shut the fuck up. That's our next clip. Oh, but fair. Herschel was a pioneer of a sort that doesn't exist anymore. A guy who's part carny, part uh, filmmaker. Really more carny than filmmaker, though. More advertising guy than filmmaker. My professional career began teaching school. I taught English and the humanities at Mississippi State. And I evolved into the advertising business. When I had bought a half interest in a cheap little film studio in Chicago, somebody said to me one day, how do you make any money in your business? I said, well, the only way to make money in the movie business is to shoot features. So that generated the thought process. And from that, I gathered whatever friends I had, and we formed a company called Mid-Continent Films. And Mid-Continent Films made two movies. One was The Prime Time, and the other was Living Venus. In the case of The Prime Time, I became the producer. I sat in a chair like this. And I had a director, and the director was very good at lighting beer cans and that kind of nonsense, but directing actors, I think, was a little bit beyond him. And the result of The Prime Time was in my opinion, a film that had not much box office value. But the value to me was that I met Dave Friedman, who later became my partner. Hi, well, this is my personal circus carnival exploitation movie museum. This is a, uh, a lifetime collection. Uh, this is back in my Paramount days. Oh, here I am with Cecil B. DeMille with Charlton Heston. You may remember him, Alfred Hitchcock. It was about 1959. I was uh, a limited partner in a firm called Modern Film Distributors in Chicago. One day, a young man comes into the office. He said, hi, my name is Herschel Gordon Lewis. And he said, well, I'm making a feature film. And he said, well, I've got a story about a young girl who is a rebel, but she gets involved with a, a painter. She poses nude voice and sounds like dynamite. At any rate, it uh, wasn't the greatest film in the world, but uh, it had sprocket holes and it could run through the machines. After this, Herschel uh, suddenly came up with the money to make another one. This one was called Living Venus. It was basically the story of a uh, Hugh Hefner-type guy, a young man that was starting a girly magazine. This time I had some track record. I had some experience. So I directed that movie myself. That was the first feature that I directed. Herschel and I had seen an industrial film, and in it were two young men, one of a young man named Bill Kerwin, and the other a young man named Harvey Corman. And they had made this picture to uh, tell uh, schoolgirls and home economics classes about the joy of serving meat. Where did you learn to carve like that? Both of them were young actors around Chicago, and uh, Herschel wound up casting them in 
a living Venus. Okay, honey. Give me the tug. And... Got it. We had been shooting for <clears throat> several days without benefit of uh, union help. And I was in Herschel's office, and uh, Everett Ryan uh, was announced. And he was the business agent for the uh, 476, which is the uh, stagehands, they called them. And he came roaring in, and uh, he said, what have you done? Blah, 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 you've been uh, doing work that should have been done by union people, and you did it. And then he called uh, Herschel, you bastard, and threw a punch at him. But he was not uh, in good shape, and he missed. And Herschel threw a punch back and connected and uh, knocked Everett down onto a couch. And uh, I've never seen anything like that. And uh, I was very impressed. You just didn't punch out the head of the union. It was not done, especially at that time. Herschel decided he had now seen me distribute pictures. He said, I think I'll distribute this myself. I said, well, Herschel, you know, uh, I don't know what your acquaintanceship is with theater owners around the car. Oh, no, no. But uh, finally, he had to call me and said, uh, could you help me uh, distribute this film? <laughs> and which I did. I was more than happy to. Come on, Professor. All right. So the interviews definitely lay out a story of a network of folks in the sex trade finding each other and working together to get these pictures made with the loosest of plots and morals as the business of the nudie cuties start to evolve the history of this is fucking great and as you said earlier matt you like to just hear old folks talk about the old times and sort of reminisce and you get yeah. that in spades in this fucking documentary. oh my god it's so good it's so good and even like joe don well maybe not one of the old timers just hearing him talk about the past and shit like that just fantastic did you know that russ meyer was as influential on other shock and sleazemeisters who were his contemporaries before this i i didn't know he was as i knew he was big i knew he was big because even i knew who russ meyer was and you know and, and enjoyed his work uh so but i did not know that he was on his contemporaries he was this uh yeah, he's kind of the moral mystery. Uh, what's the word? What the fucking word am I looking for? That's going to Influential. Me. Influential. Fucking thanks. Yeah, the immoral Mr. T's apparently actually paved the way for like filmmakers like Herschel and David, who were doing like these short reels to start trying to make their own like, you know, plot based movies or make actual movies out of this type of content so that they could have like a longer theatrical run uh, time and, and have more nudity packed into it, making the movie worth more to be able to sell. And so like I did, I had no idea that Herschel Gordon Lewis started making the nudie cuties that he made because of the Russ Meyer film, The Immoral Mr. T's, that it did that well and they were they were looking to kind of cash in on that business. That's amazing to me because without Russ Meyer doing The Immoral Mr. T's, I would never have the gore films that I have to this day because maybe Herschel would have just got out of the business earlier and not even done any of that. Yeah. <laughs> that amazes me. That is. That's like, I fucking love that. That's that type of shit you get from a documentary. It seems that several folks started this business in various forms, but the nudie cuties evolved along in regional terms in the U.S. out of a necessity to make as much of a film with as little effort as possible. So essentially, that was the thing. Make it as cheap as possible. Take as little time as possible on it. Get the biggest return on your investment for it. The easiest way to do that is just to film tits. So why not? Yeah, I mean, it's true. 
<laughs> These reels were played in clubs and burlesques and things like that. We know this from Head and Lot. There's other amazing doc, That's Exploitation, that we covered, which was very fascinating on taking us through that extreme history of the nudie cuties and the reels and all of that kind of stuff. So they hint at it here and they talk about how Herschel and David had been making those kinds of things. Yes, but this is where it's evolving from. And so I'm glad they didn't dip too much into it. Their first full try for that is The Adventures of Lucky Prier which is a real turning point in their career. Yeah. And it's interesting to see, like hear about the way these people got started making their craft. Shut the fuck up. Joe Bob is talking. Motherfucker. It's interesting to compare Russ. I feel better already. It's interesting to compare Russ Myers nudie films with Herschel Gordon Lewis's nudie films. Russ Myers are actually kind of innocent. I'm talking the ones he made from 1959 to 1963, starting with the immoral Mr. T's. Sort of like woman on a pedestal. Herschel and Dave, when they made a nudie film, they made a nudie film. Those girls were sleazy. They were offering sex from the first time you saw them on the screen. The way they shot them was very erotic. I think they're more erotic than um, the one who's known for his nudies, Russ Meyer. Dave and I were the entire crew on Lucky Pierre. I was the director and cameraman. He was the producer and sound man. Did you notice how many more full frontal nude shots are in the early nudie cuties that Herschel Gordon Lewis made than even the Russ Meyer one that they showed at the same time? Yes, of course I noticed. (laughs) Are you aware of what obscenity laws were like back then? I'm going to be 100% honest, no. Okay. Um, this is why this is such a surprise. Uh, it was actually obscenity was defined by full frontal female nudity huh. at the time. Like you could not show the full front, like pubic hair was obscenity. If you did nudie shots, you had to always keep it covered, uh, was essentially the kind of rules that you, uh, guideline that you had to follow by because like federally speaking, it could even be like, you know, taken up to where it could be. And so nobody ever really pushed that line. Uh, even if it was like supposed to be unerotically, you know, like if they were just like sunbathing quote unquote when they would get away with those bathing beauty shots that were like the pinup girls because they were in bikinis or less because they were supposed to be sunbathing so it's not necessarily erotic yeah right? but even those they weren't allowed to you know show anything more than that that is kind of crazy but i guess you know when you think back to the time it makes sense but for them i mean not for us but maybe for them i don't know it doesn't make it right, but it was like their morality clause where they figured that was too much, where you should be modesty and be modest and hide your shame of your genitals. Yeah, yeah. Come on. There's nothing more shameful than genitals, I guess. Just shut the fuck up. Joe Bob's talking. Oh, shit. Everybody wonders why there were so many films shot at these nudist camps. In 1954, there was a famous film called Garden of Eden. It was a nudist camp film. And it was banned by the state of New York. A man named Walter Bebo had made a picture down in Tampa called Garden of Eden. And this was a well-done picture. Bebo was a fighter. And he brought a suit against the censor board in New York. And finally, the New York uh, higher courts came down with a decision that nudity per se is not obscene. And that opened the gates for the state of New York to run nudist camp pictures. 
You remember, aren't you? How cool yes, is it that the films have a burst of popularity when the state loosens up its definitions of obscenity to say that just nudist films or just nude people in of itself is not obscenity. That's totally fine. And it's okay for them to be shown in theaters. So there's just a boom of them being made for that specific state just because it's legal there. Yeah. Uh, I particularly like the whole, uh, and new here, aren't you? <laughs> sure am, sir. I'm sure am. <laughs> It's interesting for me to see that filmmaking for David and Herschel is basically an excuse to flee winter for Florida and have it paid for by producing a movie. Don't you think so? I, I think yeah. that's... Like, I'm starting to get that feeling, but I also like this. Uh, new here, yeah, yes, sir. Dick flapping for the first time right on public. <laughs> Clip. Clip. <laughs> Do any of these nudie cuties seem worthwhile to track down to you? Like, do you like not just out of just I a mean, curiosity? The one, that, the one that just said you do here, the guy's like, yeah, I want to see the rest of that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I want to know how that conversation went. <laughs> All right. Well, that leads to our next clip. New York State had opened. And I said, Hirsch, we got to make a nudist camp picture quick. The basic nudist camp film was um, trying to just show how wholesome um, sunshine and fresh air and the sun is. It had nothing to do with sex. Nudism is as wholesome a way of life as I've ever known. Uh, the classic nudist camp plot is, you know, an intrepid female reporter goes in to investigate what's going on at this, at this lazy nudist camp discovers the wonders of sun worship and is converted into being a nudist herself. Sexy. Decent. Decent. Is there, is there anything in these films worth covering on the show other than just discussion of them existing like we've already done? Maybe. Not I just mean, so we can look at tits from like 70 years ago or anything. I mean, how fucking dare you? We've done that before on this show. I mean, what the fuck is your problem? I don't know. I mean, they're not great movies. Even Frank Henenlotter, who actually loves them, says that they're really stupid. Listen, like, you run Barter Town around here. I'm just giving you my honest opinion. <laughs> Should all documentaries have this much nudity in them? Yeah. I agree. I think they should. Yeah. Yeah, even documentaries would have nothing to do with this subject should. Yeah. <laughs> Hell, the person telling me the weather should be topless. Why yeah, not? I think so. I mean, why not? Who are they? So you think it would help documentaries be more entertaining and it would also help you learn on the subject if there was more nudity? Yeah. Yeah, I would feel like I would be more engaged. Do you, remember uh, you know what? Can I also say this, though? It depends on the nudity. That's fair. That's very fair. <laughs> so do you remember the film Boying that they were talking about? Yeah. Uh, would you say that that's the first meta film in that it's autobiographical about the pornographers because that's them admitting to their own life? I, uh, yeah, probably it's one of the first of that type where they're talking about themselves and uh, their own lives and yet doing a movie about it. Well, lest we forget the danger of making these types of films in your real life, that leads to our next clip. You have to think about what the, the world was like in 1960. It was a time when bare breasts on a screen was enough to get a theater closed, at least, you know, in some places, and Chicago was certainly one of them. A film called The Connection, a serious movie about drug addiction. Heroin is referred to as shit. And the Catholic diocese in Chicago has the theater shut down and the manager of the theater arrested because that word is in the movie. And since this exposure that I've had to nudie pictures, I have no qualms about 
leaving my clothes off and I wander around home naked. I don't care if somebody comes to the door. This is me. It's my house. <laughs> I love how some of the people shooting nudie cuties had their perspective on nudity change. That's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, right. It's uh, it's my house. What do you what do you guys want? And they're right. <laughs> right. I mean, obviously, answering the door nude uh, is only a problem in that if you're exposed to the outside world. But if you're in your own yeah. home and someone wants to look in your home, you can answer your door nude. Sure, why not? I would think so. Yeah. <laughs> it's not public till you step out of your house. So as long as you can't be seen from public, you're fine. Yeah, exactly. And you're good. <laughs> I don't know why everyone's getting so uptight. <laughs> I just wanted to state that I had no idea that the actor Bill Kerwin was involved so far back in the earliest days of H.G. Lewis filmmaking that he was actually in the nudie cuties. Like he appeared in several of them. Like I knew that he was in the horror films because those are the ones I was the most familiar with seeing him in. Yeah. But I had no clue that he went that far back. He even like sort of appeared nude except for a guitar. Good for him. And thank you for the guitar. <laughs> is the description of how the constant exposure to nudity in these camps removes the eroticism of nudity and the mysterious allure of such things a thing ah, wrong <laughs> do you think that that's a thing that like modern society could learn something from when they say that yeah um i, I think it's a bullshit thing it's uh but uh yeah no you won't be interested in nude women if you keep seeing them no, that's that's wrong for me, at least, uh, you know. Yeah, but like constantly every single day doing that sun worship thing, you don't think you would just get used to it? Like it wouldn't become such a thing to you anymore? No. Okay, so you don't think that's possible? Uh, not for me. Uh, now, maybe others, but not for me. Yeah, but I'm talking like just to be able to be like, uh, not necessarily noticing and being like, oh my gosh, but in the sense that you would be able to just basically go about your day and not make it a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, that's all uh, I'm talking about. It would desensitize me. What I'm, what I'm really. basic, what I'm getting at is not that I wouldn't like enjoy seeing nudity, but what I'm getting at is like, why not destigmatize it and let's free the nipple, right? Yeah. Oh, I get you there. Yeah. No, completely. Yeah. yeah I, I, I feel like modern society could kind of learn something from this discussion that these totally. guys who shot all these nudity. All right. Yeah. I was totally misunderstanding where you're coming from. Yeah. Come on. Snow. What's the big fucking deal? Yeah, no, I would never get tired of seeing a woman topless. No, that that would never happen. I understand yeah. that. But I can also, you know, compose myself once used to such a thing in such a way as to carry on a conversation <laughs> and not make a big deal about the fact that they're topless. Yeah. Topless. I know I know I can do that. I've seen me do that. Yeah, right. I've seen me and I'll do it again. <laughs> Just watch me. Just watch me. I've done it before and I'll do it again. All right. So this is the end of the nudie cutie era of Lewis's career for the most part at this point. Um, we've reached that point in the documentary because this is the start of the creation of the Gore films. And it really begins with the death of those nudie cutie pictures ability to make money because what is happening and uh, what's going on is people that are making these nudie cuties, they're also starting to throw more money into them. They're throwing more plot into to them and there's the market saturated so it's harder for Herschel Gordon Lewis to create the kind of cheap crap product that he's been making and still make money on them so they're trying to find another avenue to be able to bring in some revenue from and that so they don't just have to make nudie cuties so he's like partially bored it seems the way they're talking about in the description of that and partially um you know they're not making the money that they used to on them so they're going to try something new to get attention yeah that's what it sounds like <laughs> 
<laughs> that leads to our next clip. So we decided to shoot one for ourselves. By this time, the word was out that this kind of movie was making money. And everybody was shooting this kind of movie. The question was, what kind of motion picture might there be that the major companies either could not make or would not make, but that theater owners still would book and that people would go to see? Dave, you remember how we came up with the idea for Blood Feast in the first place? Well, we were sitting around one day and uh, you came up with a four-letter word called gore. gore. And we were kicking around ideas all afternoon until uh, suddenly we came up uh, with uh, the Egyptian feast. We were staying at a little motel on the North Beach in Miami called the Suez. And the Suez Motel had as its ornament a sphinx. Yes, the sphinx was only about six feet high and it was cast concrete. But a sphinx is a sphinx. And you look up against the sky, it's a sphinx. So that gave us this Egyptian overtone for Blood Feast. We planted a story about pretty model, uh, Bunny Down, pretty uh, Miami model, was the author of Blood Feast. Well, she was, and she typed the script. Bunny Down. Um, she was Herschel's right-hand, truly right-hand person. She was in his movies, she wrote some of his movies, she was his production manager, she was, uh, she was indispensable in every way for all those early movies. And we had gone down to Miami very ill-prepared to make Blood Feast because we were shooting another picture. We really came down to Miami not expecting to shoot Blood Feast. Mm -hmm. We wrote the script as we went. We said, well, as long as we're here, let's go ahead and shoot Blood Feast. Well, we needed a beautiful girl. Uh, I belong to the Playboy Club, and I met Miss Mason, and I said, would you like to be in a movie? And she said, you're Dave Friedman, aren't you? I said, yes. I said, you and Herschel Lewis, well, yeah, well, I don't want to be in one of your movies. I said, well, this isn't going to be a nudist camp movie or anything like that. This is going to be a horror film. Oh, really? Yeah, she said, I don't have to take my clothes off. I said, no, because she had taken her clothes off for a big spread in Playboy. She said, okay, I'll do it. How much do I get paid? I said, $175 for two days. She says, I'll take it. Well, I think when Herschel met Connie, it was an instant dislike. Bambi meets Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> In defense of Herschel, she did not know her lines. She was always late. She was trying to be a prima donna. But I think Herschel's great statement, and you tell him that one. Well, the comment I made when, when someone asked me about her, her thespian talent was that I felt that if they took the key out of her back, she would simply stand in place. Even by the standards of Playboy Playmates, she's one of the worst actresses in the history of Playboy Playmates. Kerwin was the consummate helper on a set. When he wasn't acting, he would help with the crew. He was really part of our stock company. And he played the lead in a number of our movies. He was a great, warm, larger than life. He was Rooney. He was this character. Bill was Herschel's go-to right-hand man. He'd you know, help him with script. He'd help him with gathering people together. And, and then he would be the lead. He would be the, you know, the key actor in the movie. And then he would go back to the hotel and he would drink 
you know, a, a bottle of whiskey and, and get completely <laughs> drunk and, and have to be carried up to his room. And then he would get up in the morning and do it all again. You know, I was an 18-year-old kid. And Bill was, I, I don't know if he was five years older or whatever, but he was just a, a giant, you know, as far as we were concerned. Does seeing the low quality of some of the films we are about to dive into worry you about the rest of this year for the show? Nah, I'm fine. We're going to be fine. Everything's fine. Shut the fuck up because Joe Bob is talking. Ah, oh, fuck. It's actually the yin and the yang of Mal Arnold and Connie Mason. It's Mal Arnold. The, the worst over-actor in history, and Connie Mason, the most deadpan non-actress in history. So the plot line, which I am using as a euphemism, the plot line of Blood Feast was that a woman goes to see an exotic caterer named Fuad Ramses, which was as Egyptian a name as we could put together. It's really odd for me to see where these actors came from and have them be someone other than these weird characters on screen. Yeah. Like, for me, it's always been like you never knew who these folks were. You would never really be able to find them. But they track them down for this documentary and it demystifies that whole thing of like, where the hell did these people even come from? Because it shows you who they are, where they came from and how they're really non-actors who are just doing Herschel Gordon Lewis a, a solid for his films. Yeah. It's nice. <laughs> it humanizes the actors in ways that I was not prepared for because, like, I really like to rag on the performances in these films and getting to see how wonderfully genuine and kind these people are. I almost will feel bad about doing it now. Almost. No, you won't. <laughs> Speaking of things I don't feel bad about, here's our next clip. <laughs> Think back, if you can, to the primitive times in which we made this movie. Outrageous. And that was the entire intent to make something outrageous. And in that respect, yes, we did succeed. Even though you've seen gore everywhere now, the, you can tell this is something special, that this was gore filmed to sex, basically. Instead of really wanting to see the open vagina shot, which you could never see then, you couldn't even see pubic hair, the tongue is that. I mean, it goes like tits or blood, vaginas are open wounds. You know, it, it, you watch it as if it's pornography almost. And the cum shot is always like the most horrible gore shot at the end. So it's almost filmed like pornography in a way. The rhythm of it is the same. The payoff is the same. The cum shot is the same. You know, when you think about it, we shot that thing in four and a half days. It actually cost, including the answer print, $24,500. <laughs> Uh, I'll never forget the opening. We opened it for the drive-in in Peoria. The Bel Air Figuring drive. if it died in Peoria, who would know? <laughs> We've got our wives with us. We couldn't stand it. We had to go to this We opening. had determined we weren't well, going we to go. Absolutely would not go. We're halfway, oh, about five miles out of Peoria, and suddenly we're in the back of a funeral procession. Mm -hmm. Cars and backed up. Backed up. And in the far distance, there looming, pointing toward the sky, was a screen tower. Yeah. And I said, Hirsch, I think that's the drive-in. I said, it's either an accident or we are the uh -huh. accident. Carol sat there, my wife uh, sat there very proper, never said a word. On the way home, she's very quiet. I said, tell me something, honey. She said, what? She said, what'd you think of the picture? And she said, in one word? I said, yeah. She said, vomitous. <laughs> so that gave me the idea. The next day I went out and ordered a half a million airplane uh, barf bags and had it printed up. You may need this when you see Blood Feast. And we handed these things out 
at every theater a week before the picture played. Can you believe how quickly gore films actually caught on? Like the first one that came out into existence and boom. Yeah, and it's a huge thing now. And I loved the... Um, I love the comparisons uh, Waters made to porn. Yeah, it, it rang a little too close to home, which is why I say I apologize for nothing with this clip. But at the same time, I'm like, God damn, dude, do you have to talk about like the reason I watched this as a teenager so much? Because I couldn't <laughs> get porn. I watched this kind of crap. <laughs> you uh, you got called out, motherfucker. Yeah, yeah. So how surprised are you that many of the Ballyhoo campaigns like vomit bags for over the top gross out all stem from this single film Blood Feast? Uh, I like it. And I love that you can tell something uh, where it's all coming from and uh, where everything stems from. Uh, I like having that starting point. John Waters is talking, so shut the fuck up. I guess I first saw Herschel's movies accidentally. I had never heard of them or anything. And I went to see Blood Feast at the probably Timonium Drive-In Cinema in uh, Baltimore, where we used to sneak in and go in the trunk and all that. And they had the vomit bags. They, they had everything. And uh, I just remember people leaning on the horn. Every time there was a gore scene, they would just lean on the horn. And approval, that was like applause in the drive-in. But in those days, the drive-ins were passion pits, you know, where you couldn't go. I mean, people were getting hand jobs while they were watching that. People were getting blowjobs. People were fucking and drinking and doing everything watching those movies. And I remember looking at the ads for the concession stand that looked like Blood Feast. Actually, the sandwiches were so ugly. The color was so ugly that in a weird way, it, it fit in. The meatball subs looked like the tongue in Blood Feast. Hi, Kevin Thomas. I recently retired after 44 years at the LA Times, reviewing for 43 of those years. Oh, Blood Feast, I was assigned to see it on opening day at the movie palace, the Los Angeles. Uh, on South Broadway in downtown LA. You stand there in this lobby the size of a football field under three giant crystal chandeliers with this Louis XIV Hall of Mirrors Versailles kind of imagery. This is a theater that was built to show prestige movies. And uh, I was there for the run of Blood Feast. To see this picture in LA's most elegant movie palace was particularly depressing, I think. But I remember, as I was leaving, the manager of the theater, longtime manager, he felt compelled to rush up to you. He said, I am so disgusted by this picture. I am ashamed to be the manager of this theater showing this picture. You know, he went on and on. And I'm telling you, I never had that ever happen before <laughs> or since where the manager was came up. I was a doorman, uh, fresh out of a small town in central California. In, in 1963, we hadn't seen splatter films or anything like that. Uh, movies with body parts and stumps and tongues and cannibalism. Could I write, read my review? It's so funny. Sure, yeah, I love it. Blood Feast is a blot on the American film industry. There are five murders, four of them depicted in the most grisly manner possible. These scenes are realistic and are shown in minute detail. What's worse, they're in vivid color. For all its bloodiness, the picture is a bore. 
I was on a deadline, but I, you know, you know, you, made, you wanted to feel like to go home and take a bath or shower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, is there any surprise that something so graphic and still quite graphic to this day, actually, would have such an inevitable backlash from the pearl clutchers like this? No, I mean, obviously, it's always going to be that way. I mean, come on. <laughs> This type of backlash is demonstrated in our next clip. Even then, when you saw Blood Feast, you knew it was a trash classic. Herschel's movies were not made for irony. They were not made to be so bad they were good. Uh, The people that saw those movies were freaked out by them, and the girls liked to scream and up to their dates and have their dates hug them. These were scary movies to people. These weren't made for hipsters. These weren't made for film intellectuals. And only later did film intellectuals begin to even write about them. Although in France, they wrote about Herschel before anybody, certainly, which is not surprising considering their embrace of auteurs of all colors. When we opened that picture, we took the industry unaware. There was all kinds of censorship then, and it was primarily local. So we could, there was no such thing as a national means of gauging whether a theater would play a picture or not. We were going for the underground anyway. But in various uh, censor boards, of course, they, we, they, they grabbed us and shook us. And some newspapers wouldn't take a, a title with the word blood in it. And they were nonplussed too because we had no obscenity in it. We had no nudity in it. Well, I think we were the, the progenitors of a number of the uh, regulations that came to, into play afterward. Because when we brought out Blood Feast, there were no regulations at all covering uh, it. There never been a movie like know. this. People forget in the old days, even in underground movies or gore movies, the police would raid it and the whole audience would get busted and taken away in New York. Imagine if that happened today. That would really be exciting if you went to the movies and you had to call home from the police station. You were arrested for watching a movie. That happened with Jack Smith movies, Flaming Creatures in New York, Scorpio Rising. That happened a lot. And um, and the projectionists, they would bust a lot. Who? Wh- why? He didn't book them. He was the lowest paid employee there. You know, we were probably tripping when we watched it for the first time. We're certainly on pot. And, uh, you know, we were all screaming in the car, everybody honking the horn or everything. So I became obsessed by it, certainly, and then started reading about him because Variety was really the only person that wrote about him at the time. I mean, film magazines didn't write about him very much at all, really. When I wrote Shock Value, which came out in, I think, 80 or something, I think I did introduce Herschel to a generation that maybe didn't know his work. And he has an amazing career. That's why you're making this movie about him. That's why I have many books upstairs. That's why I still am obsessed by finding the novelizations, which are hard to find, especially Moonshine Mountain. The paperback is pretty rare. The only one I don't have is Blood Feast, and every lecture I do, I ask the kids to send it to me, and they haven't yet. And Herschel told me he only had one in his whole life. He's only seen it once himself, but there is one. And I I don't know if there's any more than these two, but these two I've found. Okay, again, you know, this is a this is an 18-year-old kid who has never been outside of Chicago when I, you know, when I first met Dave. And so within six months or so, I'm down in Miami working on Blood Feast because of Herschel and Dave. And Dave is a carny. Dave is a, you know, he's just got that easy southern hustle, carny kind of way of doing stuff and knows it and plays it. We finished Blood Feast and it, it was evening and Dave said, come on, we'll go for a ride. So we got in this convertible and we're driving down one of those Miami streets and it's, you know, it's beautiful. It's palm trees and it's, you know, it's this magical place and I've never been there and I am just as impressed as I can be. And, and we're talking and Dave says to me, you know, you're ruined for real life. You're never going back. 
because you're in the carny now. <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? And he said, come on, how could you ever go back to that other life after you'd done this? And I guess he was right. <laughs> Damn. You know, in 1963, this must have seemed like the ultimate transgressive, destructive cinema that ever existed. Yeah. It, it, it truly must have. It must have been like, oh, my God, everything's going to fall apart. Our children, won't someone think of the fucking children? <laughs> With the runaway success and the fervor over Blood Feast being what it was, is it any shock they tried again by spending more time and more money on the next one? Yeah, no, of course not. I mean, come on. Yeah, you, you, you need to you need to have your shit going. <laughs> the only real shock is that they chose to spend more money. On I know. I can't believe that. Wait, you're spending money? That's not, right. <laughs> that's not your movies. That's not what we're doing here. Well, I think they're like, well, how, you know, they're trying to adjust the formula a little bit where they know they're going to make money on the next one. But if they make it a little bit better, will they make more money, you know, yeah. or will they or, or will they make less like that's it's kind of a little bit more of a gamble because they're like, hey, this one hits so big, we can afford to take a gamble on the next one and spend a little more money and let's see yeah. what happens. Yeah, maybe we can do other stuff. How much fun does it seem like these two friends had throughout their partnership making these films? Uh, it sounds like they had a great time. <laughs> it sounds like they were living the high life and they just draw like they they drew other people into this, like just travel to Florida during the winter. Let's shoot a couple of films while we're down there to snowbird it up. And then maybe we can make enough money to live off of for the summer yeah, right. where we normally live, even though it's fucking. Yeah, it's just, hey, let's have a summer vacation, but make someone else pay for it and tell them we're going to make a real good movie. I mean, it's not going to be good at all, but we're going to tell them it is. All right. I wrote this next question down, obviously not knowing what your thoughts were going to be at all. Although uh, I know the answer, I just want to, I'm going to ask it again anyway. Okay. How much fun do you think it would be to just hang out with these guys as they are in this documentary and just listen to them tell these old war stories of their lives? That'd be some of the coolest fucking times ever. Who wouldn't want to do that? <laughs> How uncomfortable does the plot of 2000 Maniacs make you to discuss that film coming up? Makes me lie. I mean, it being surrounded in a town and like, fuck, yeah, that's bad. John Waters is talking, so shut the fuck up. Motherfucker. Rednecks and black audiences were familiar with gore films. They didn't play in fancy theaters. They played in the South and in drive-ins and exploitation theaters for the least discriminating viewer. In Baltimore, they called it, I want to see some green. That meant gore, which I didn't even know. That was a black expression I would hear in the black exploitation. Let's see some green, they'd yell. 2000 Maniacs did good business. It never did the business that Blood Feast did. But historically, I would rather be remembered by 2,000 maniacs than by Blood Feast, but I guess that's not to be. Once we had these two movies out, we decided that this was a category of motion picture in which we could have temporary dominance. You must keep reminding yourself, it's just a movie. It's just a movie. It's just a movie. So we made a movie called Color Me Blood Red about a mad painter who paints his reds with human blood. Obviously, if he'd ever heard of chickens, that wouldn't have worked, but he had to have human blood. This is Adam. Should we just pretend that Color Me Blood Red was not just a remake of A Bucket of Blood from 1959? Yeah, let's go ahead, because I don't know what the fuck that is, so... 
<laughs> a bucket of blood is um, Walter Paisley is the character's name that was played by Dick Miller. And he is a kid who just hangs around a coffee shop where like artists and poets and all that stuff. And he just works there. And one day he accidentally or somehow kills a cat, but gets it cast in cement at the same time. So the sculpture, he just names it as cat. And someone thinks it's a sculpture when they see it. Mm. So he then pretends to be an artist by basically covering dead bodies with plaster until it looks like them but he just does it very loosely and he scams this whole artsy crowd and all of that so that's why i'm saying color me blood red might just be a remake of that well that's good good for them (laughs) also i want to say earlier i was kind of being facetious about the ballyhoo thing earlier on when i was doing the review but you can actually hear the it's only a movie it's only a movie in one of the trailers in the background whenever we're covering this yeah you hear it it's it's awesome it's only yeah. a movie. Right. It's like, only so, a movie. So even that was done first by Horschel Gordon Lewis trying to, because he knows how to market his garbage. Like, that's literally what he is. He's saying, I'm making terrible films. These are terrible. You should not be watching them. This is so bad for you. Look how awful this is. And people fall for it. And that same technique gets used in Last House on the Left's campaign very successfully. It's only a movie. Oh, yeah. It's only a movie. It's only a movie. <laughs> I think John Waters is about to start talking again, so shut the fuck up. Oh, God damn it. I think the signature Herschel movies to me were Blood Feast, 2000 Maniacs, and Color Me Blood Red. I mean, that one where he's painting with them, I was very Eve Klein. I don't know if Herschel knew, he knew about Eve Klein, where he painted with nude women in blue, and he would rub them on the canvas and everything. He was a real great contemporary artist, who at his opening even made the drinks blue, so when they went home the next morning, everybody peed the color blue that he invented for his art show, which was a great tip, I think. And maybe Herschel did know about that. Certainly to me, now that I know all that, I I think that that had to influence Color Me Blood Red. I would actually love to just sit and hear John Waters talk about like all this various pop culture and weird artsy expressionist stuff. He fascinates me. I just love the stories that he tells about the world he's been in. He's a a fascinating dude. Uh, I mean, that's not not weird at all. He's a really interesting guy. Lived a really, and she's lived a really interesting life. Yeah, absolutely. The stories about the drive-in alone, like I kind of am nostalgic for a time that I never got to live because that sounds like a fucking anarchy, lawless place that I would have loved to have been. I've only got to live the tail end of drive-ins as they were dying. It's, it's just a lot of hand jobs. Don't worry about it. Clipped. <laughs> Speaking of that, we actually are going to play our next clip. We had fun. We had fun working together. We liked one another. We got along with each other. At the end of the day, we would go out and eat, laugh about all of the uh, mishaps that had happened, all of the uh, the stupid things that uh, that came along. And it's just great to have been a partner with a guy that you liked. During Color Me Blood Red, we had a stupid argument. It was mostly my fault, but. I walked away and went out to Hollywood, and uh, Herschel went his way, I went my way, and uh, but uh, we had constantly remained friends, and here we are again, and uh, I'm having a ball. Dave Friedman then subsequently moved to California, and he did this just as we were about to make a movie called Moonshine Mountain. So after Friedman and Lewis split up and they go on their own way, it looks like Herschel Gordon Lewis got sick of gore and then invented some kind of a exploitation film because there's like a couple of those that get mixed in with the gore stuff. Any thoughts on that? Um, I not really. 
I'm sorry. I don't really have a thought on that. Just that, you know, sometimes people think uh, maybe one thing worked like Hillbilly Gore. And so, hey, let's let's go. We're going to have keep doing it. We're going to have 16 total weeks of these films. So you're actually going to be seeing a lot of this kind of stuff, including the exploitation stuff that he did. Now, that got really big in like the 70s. There was a lot more of that kind of exploitation flick where it was an action flick based around that stuff, like Gator Bait and those kinds of films. Uh, so the reason that I was asking about that was like if seeing if maybe that was something that you'd seen before, like the, you know, the rural America uh, battling for, you know, their, their blood in, on, in the soil kind of t- stuff. You know, I never have i mean right. i've seen i've seen the remake of 2000 maniacs and i guess maybe you can include children of the corn in that a little that's kind of some exploitation but that's more like exploitation with some horror to it yeah. no, he makes straight up like moonshiners and petty criminals like in the rural communities and stuff like that kind of film oh okay like uh, it's yeah, literal I, exploitation yeah i've never really seen anything like that no well, you're about to. <laughs> I'm, am I about to get into some of that? Awesome. Great. Yeah, that's going to be coming up in one of these episodes. Is I know we have Moonshine Mountain for sure, so we're yeah. going to cover that one. All right, so we should both shut the fuck up because Joe Bob's about to start talking. Holy shit. Herschel went through a period in the late 60s when he was um, hiring himself out as a hired gun to make other people's movies. They used to have these ads in the back of Fangoria magazine that if you, if you, if you sent in a script, they would... They would make your movie. They didn't care what the script was. <laughs> if you paid a certain amount of money, Herschel was kind of doing the same thing. A fellow named uh, Jim Baker, who had a stage show that he would produce in one theater on a Saturday afternoon as a matinee when that theater had an adult movie in there that they didn't want to show at a matinee. And that was a simple case of him hiring me to shoot the live stage show, it made perfect sense from the viewpoint of economics that he would then, instead of being able to have that show in one theater, he could have it in multiple theaters. This was produced by uh, a guy who was a spook show magician named Dr. Silkini, and he had another professional magician in the cast playing Merlin named Roy Houston. And this was meant as a vehicle for them. But it does have one interesting moment. There's a bad old witch in the film, and she is taken and thrown into a crematorium and burned alive. And then the crematorium is opened, and you can see her burnt bones, which is, I guess, Herschel doing a gore scene for six-year-olds. By the second half of the 60s, is it any surprise that Herschel Gordon-Lewis may have actually invented the drug film? No. (laughs) <laughs> that something weird film is something that I've definitely seen and it lives up to its name as well. God uh, damn. Did that name something weird ring a bell for you in any way? Like, did you, are you familiar with something named something weird? I am not actually. So no, that, that I, this is all new to me. Oh, okay. So there's a distributor of many of these types of films, like Herschel Gordon Lewis's films, the uh, Nudie Cuties. I think they may have even been involved in this documentary uh, as well. But they go by the name of something weird as the name of the like DVD and Blu-ray distributor, uh-huh. and uh, they're where I found a love for a lot of these things. Like a lot of these films is where they made it available for us in like the '90s and stuff like that. And the reason that I found something weird is because I started looking for Blood Feast and another film because of John Waters because he featured two films in his uh, in his film Serial Mom that the characters are watching and Blood Feast is one of them so I found Herschel Gordon Lewis because of John Waters and I found the Something Weird distributor because I was looking for Herschel Gordon Lewis and they had the film available on DVD because of Serial Mom and it being featured in it nice 
<laughs> yeah, see, I had actually found Blood Feast um, completely by accident in a video store hosted by Joe Bob Briggs because he was going to do a series of videos, I think, between like the movie channel and uh, going to TNT. He was trying to do something else. And he was going to do a video series. And I think he produced like four of them or so. And then it just kind of faltered and it, it didn't work and it just kind of stopped. Well, the very first one that he did in this series was he hosted Blood Feast where he talked about it very much like he did in the movie channel um and just kind of discussed it and then would play the film and then discuss it at the end of the film after the credits you know very much like those tapes would would be yeah. and um uh, that's how i found blood feast was that in a video store and i watched it because i saw joe bob on the cover and i'm like whatever joe bob i'm watching this it, it's got joe bob so you're gonna watch something like that <laughs> right and then Watching Serial Mom after finding that tape, I realized it, and then, boom, years and years later, when I'm trying to find a good copy of Blood Feast that's not a bad VHS that I've watched a hundred times and is falling apart, something weird video pops into my life, and that's how these timelines grow. <laughs> well, that's nice. Should someone who is such a provocateur try to tame his sensibilities in order to gain more success? Yes. You think he should and try to gain more success? I think so. Why not? Isn't that the whole point? I mean, how often have some. how often have we seen that fail as they are essentially self-censoring and limiting what people like about themselves? Well, By doing I guess that's true. I mean, you're kind of fucking over your base that made you, uh, you know, well, in, you, that anybody would want. And how true are you being to yourself? I mean, well, I think it's more important to be true to yourself and admit that you're making cheap crap films with tits and or gore in them just to get eyes and butts in the seats, you know, and that's all you care about is just get turning a quick buck over for these cheap films. Why, why, why try to do the, uh, the kids films and other things like that, you know, even though if you're a director for hire, sure, you're a director for hire. Somebody paid you to do it. You go out and shoot it and you yeah. do it exactly the same where you shoot it on the cheap, right? Like that's totally fine. But, you know, he does end up trying to tame some of his things down and that tends to make some of his movies um, less interesting. And I'm kind of not looking forward to some of them. Oh, wow. Damn. Listen to you. <laughs> Yeah, knowing now that they were self-censored, I'm kind of worried because there's some that I haven't seen, some of the lesser known ones. I haven't dove into this box set yet, which is why we're covering it, but I've seen most of the films that are in this box set. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay, so which is better, to have the film finished by Tuesday and making money or to have it unfinished and set to an artistic standard that makes you happy? Oh, what is that? Um, okay, give me those options again. Okay, the film's finished, and you get to make money on it, but it's not as good as you would have liked it to be, or uh -huh. it remains unfinished, and it gets to the artistic standard that would actually make you happy. You just couldn't finish it. Oh, oh no, that is rough. I would rather it finished and maybe not be perfect, so at least people get to see something of what I did. Because if you perfect it, but it never releases, then what's the point? Yeah, that's kind of how I am, too. So if I, I don't fault Herschel Gordon-Lewis for making he, the movie for the way that he did that objective, because honestly, his stuff is out there. It exists. He pushed some stuff forward. He did some pioneering. And again, it's not that he made great films. It's just that he did the first of the kind and made a template, which people then perfected later. So he's essentially got the archetypes nailed down and just delivered them poorly. Yeah. <laughs> Is finding true love on the set of a salacious trash picture the kind of romantic story one should be proud of telling? I think so. <laughs> Wasn't that cute? Like how he, how they met and how like they really got to know yeah. each other on the set and like, fell hey, in love? I mean, they became best friends. It's so cute. It's adorable. 
<laughs> is it possible in the internet age to have your finger on the pulse of social consciousness like H.G. Lewis did around his time and make movies in the time that it takes for these things to still be relevant in like a two or three day turnaround schedule that you could shoot them in? Do you think you could do that now like as an asylum style of movie making scheme where something hits in a headline and three days later before the fervor of it dies down, you've already made a cheap movie about it? Yeah, um... Well, that's that's a uh, that's rough. Uh, <laughs> I don't think you can because the, the uh, news cycles the news cycles twenty four hours. Like you have a day. If yeah. you could turn it around and have it released in a day, I think maybe. Like, but no, I don't think you can. I don't think so either. And uh, I mean, you raise like really kind of excellent points. Um, God damn, fuck you. <laughs> I don't think you can. I'm with you. I don't think you can. I'm trying to find a way to disagree with you. Just to kind of you know have that, but I don't, I don't, I don't have that. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you a less difficult question in All the right. morning or on a on a Sunday afternoon at this point. All right, what restaurant would you like to make a deal with for free food, like H.G. Lewis did with KFC for his film movies? Oh shit! Filming yeah. productions. Um, fuck. Either maybe Buffalo Wild Wings. That might be some shit. <laughs> <laughs> but not the one that's here locally on a street that I won't name because they're terrible. I'll tell you off air if you want. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, you'll have to tell me that one. <laughs> yeah, it's probably not the one near you. Let me just put it that All way. Right. I don't really go to there anymore, uh, to any place anymore, really. I, I have my other bar that I go to a lot, and that's about it. <laughs> okay, so if you could make a deal with that bar, that would be the bar because that's the one yeah. you go to the most. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that's fucking hilarious i would just make a deal with a pizza joint to make me keto pizzas oh there you <laughs> so go like, just, <laughs> just some keto pizzas motherfucker you would be not shocked at all how much i just enjoy just eating keto pizza and like that's the thing that keeps me going it's ridiculous i, I would not be shocked you're right i i i, I believe everything you tell me <laughs> well then believe that we have another clip of course i started a movie called an eye for an eye in which someone a blind man gets an a transplant of some sort and it suddenly gives him not only his eyesight back but it gives him extrasensory perception but i got out of the business i was gone before that movie ever got finished and as far as i know it never did uh, the movie An Eye for an Eye, which you said never got uh, edited, um, I had a role as a morgue attendant. Well, we did a supposedly uh, a, a guy getting hit by a car. We were out on some highway that was being built, and uh, we, we had a dummy, uh, or as a mannequin, dressed up. Uh, Herschel said uh, uh, to Paul Hunter, who was working with us? Uh, let me use your car. Let me. We'll use your car. Nothing will happen to it. So they they did the stunt, and and the car actually hit the dummy, and the head of the mannequin flew up in the air and came down and smashed Paul's windshield. And Herschel said, "That's great. Let's go." And we got in our cars and left Paul there. <laughs> It just, and with Paul, I remember Paul in the background saying, hey, what about me, what about me? The worst Herschel Gordon Lewis film is one that you can't see because, you know, it drives you crazy. You want to see everything he's ever made. And the one film we've never seen is a film called An Eye for an Eye. However, something weird has found the unedited picture negative. Now, what we're gonna do is we're gonna try to edit some scenes together. We're gonna add some uh, music and sound effects and we're gonna show you now a couple of scenes from an eye for an eye. 
How interested would you be in seeing the unfinished film like an eye for an eye actually completed? Like just from the footage that they showed, like how intrigued were you by what was going on there? I want to see it just because they say it's the worst fucking movie. So <laughs> how much did the footage that they actually found for of eye for an eye for the doc that they actually showed you with the music put over it? How much did that actually remind you of a Garth Marenghi's Dark Place? A lot. Yeah. Okay. I remember that. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Of all the lowdown tricks pulled by H.G. Lewis in his films, which is the most egregious to you? The the what? All the lowdown tricks, like all the all the like cheap things or just like blatant disregard for the audience, something that he did, like what of what they're showing you in the documentary, which is the most egregious that you can think of? The egregious is I mean, it has to be when they that kid show when he uh he burnt the witch up. <laughs> it's, it's just in the a middle of a kid show. In the middle of a kid show, yeah. What if that was already part of the play though, and he just filmed it, right? Like, I mean, that's fucked up that they did that in the play. Then, yeah, I mean, you're right on that as well. But yeah. So for me, the thing that I found the most egregious and the thing that I'm like definitely dreading is that part in the gruesome twosome where there's just two mannequin heads talking. I'm not looking forward to that at all. Oh, God. Yeah, I forgot about that. Oh, Jesus Christ. So dumb. There literally is a sucker born every minute in there. Well, shut the fuck up. Joe Bob is talking. Oh, God damn it. She Devils on Wheels is a wonderful film. The first all-female biker gang film. Herschel would always follow the wherever the money was and that was the period when there were biker films were making a whole lot of money from about 1968 to 1971. It came out a year after Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, and it takes the nihilism of Faster Pussycat Kill Kill to a much deeper and more depraved level where they really hate men. Oddly enough, men love that. Men love to see hot-looking, castrating females. Just for the hell of it was a movie about a bunch of young toughs. And it was at a time in which the headlines had begun to fill with stories about young people who had no morality whatever. It's like everything that older people think that younger people are capable of. Let's go ahead and show them what younger people are capable of. So it's sort of the ultimate juvenile delinquent movie. Wild gang. It was pure destruction. In fact, the theme song, which I wrote, uh, was called Destruction. There's a group of wild animals coming from the zoo, a lion and a tiger and an elephant, too. They're crashing through the jungle, they're crashing through the town, and they'll huff and they'll puff and they'll tear your house down. And then, destruction. When I was hired, he said, Yeah, Ray, you know, in a movie, you're going to have to drive a car and you got a hot rod, a motorcycle, and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I said, Sure, I can do that. I didn't even have a driver's license. I had nothing. I've never been on a motorcycle. I just lied through my teeth. So the day comes to do the scene, and it's the scene where um, we're in a uh, Mustang convertible, and we come around the corner, and I got my three gang members or two gang members standing back with a big, big uh, pail of whitewash, and we're going to come around the corner, and they're going to throw the whitewash on this teacher, on this old lady, and that was the gag. So all I had to do was, you know, drive straight ahead, make a sharp uh, curve, you know, like a... And they dump the thing. Okay, ready? Action. And I throw the car in reverse. 
and there's whitewash like all over the back seat and all over the guys and like that. And Herschel goes, cut, cut, cut. And comes up to me and says, Ray. He says, uh, and he's always very calm. He never yells. He says, uh, why did you uh, put the car in reverse? And I said, well, I said, I always start a car in reverse. He says, oh, well, we're going to do it again when we clean up. He says, and uh, next time, don't do that. I said, okay. So we did it again, and if you see the film, it worked that time. In 1968, uh, I'd uh, just uh, dropped out of the last uh, semester of uh, college uh, because I didn't want to become a high school English teacher. I wanted to be in the film business, and so I started calling everyone in Chicago. And eventually I came to one, and he said, well, the only guy in Chicago who's doing features is Herschel Gordon Lewis. He's the guy you should get in contact with. So after that, uh, I immediately called Herschel up and uh, made an appointment to go down and see him at his offices. Uh, and I uh, had a little conversation with him. And uh, about the only negative thing that he wanted me to change is he wanted me to shave my beard and cut my hair. But it wasn't too long after that that he gave me a call. By the last few years of the 60s and the first year of the 70s, other filmmakers started making their own over-the-top gore films with more time and effort than what Herschel is willing to do. Do you feel this is part of what leads to the decline of his film's appeal to audiences? It can. Yeah, because again, it's like we were talking about. Uh, you, you get rid of your base. What are you doing? Is his style of filmmaking too low budget and careless for audience appeal by the last film, The Gorgor Girls, in the nineteen seventy, like in nineteen seventy two? I think sometimes you think you can get away with everything. Yeah, so you you cut corners even more. Oh no, my crowd expects it. The last topic brought up is H. G. Lewis's place in film history and where the Talking Heads folks see him fitting into that place of a historical figure. Without seeing the films, would you care to comment on that based on just the doc alone? Like how important of a historical figure do you think he is? Well, he's definitely important when it comes to, well, I mean, he is the godfather of Gore. So the fact that he was there first matters more than the fact that he didn't do it well. Yeah, because the reason that people, some people are able to do it well nowadays is because he introduced it spearheaded it he's the uh pioneer who got there when made made the trail ugly but he got there first exactly all right everybody shut the fuck up because joe bob's talking in our last clip <laughs> the the people in hollywood take advantage of what pioneer filmmakers do for them it's a guy like herschel who goes out and does it first and is despised for doing it and then Gradually, mainstream Hollywood changes and starts to show more and more and more and more and more and more. Herschel made that possible. Well, I just think that Herschel is a great filmmaker. And I think he, God knows, made his mark on the history of exploitation. And what's even more surprising is there is no such thing as exploitation anymore. Hollywood co-opted every single thing there was in, in exploitation and has taken it. And now they think of it as art and realism. And Herschel did it first, and it was a lot more fun when it was socially irredeeming, I think. The documentary shows H.G. Lewis being celebrated for his colorful exploitation career in uh, conventions getting signings done and everything like that and then they actually show like an actual celebration as it rolls credits to him performing the theme to 2000 Maniacs. All 
right. So that pretty much wraps up our review for episode 400. I don't really have a whole lot to talk about that documentary in retrospect. I think we did a hell of a good job. It's an hour and 46 minutes of your life well spent, yes. even with just the Cliff's Notes version that we just gave you here. Yeah, no, totally agree. It was a great time. Yeah, I can't wait to actually start digging in and talking about it. I'm going to do the first two weeks of Herschel Gordon Lewis coverage after this as well, I think. I think you are, yeah. Yeah, or no, at least one more. All right, I think you do one more, and then yeah. it's up to me. Yeah, then it's you. Something along then, those then lines. Then it's you is again. It's always yeah. us. I didn't manipulate it in such a way so that I could do the coverage of all the movies I like. Oh, I'm sure you didn't. <laughs> they're in order of when they were released and I didn't manipulate things in any way, shape or form and volunteer for three weeks so that I could get things in the order that I wanted them. Liar. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we do some news and get the fuck out of here for everybody? Can we? Yeah. All right, folks, we're going to take another break here. I'm going to play Sam Hain, all murder, all guts, all fun on the pirate radio edit. When we come back, we're going to do some news and get rid of us for the rest of this episode. Yes. on the pirate radio edit good times <laughs> well let's give these folks even more good times and give them some psyops this uh, comes from chris Oh, our man Chris from Wisconsin. He must yeah. have an incredibly long penis. I'm sure he does. I mean, why wouldn't he? He's amazing. From the BBC. All right. City of Regina in Canada. Sorry for sexualized ads. Ooh. Afraid of vaginas? They, I think they might be. I think that they might they just be. Had a mouth party. They could have had that too. They could have had that too. Uh, who doesn't like a good uh, bukkake mouth party, I guess? It's going to cost you some serious cock. One might think that. And there's a lot of weighing around. Mostly because I put my penis inside of you bareback. <laughs> Don't threaten to cut off my cock for $60. It's the erection that counts. It is. All right. Jesus Christ. All right. The tourism organization for Virginia, Canada, has apologized after critics claimed its new advertising campaign sexualized the city. A series, they are. A series of new slogans leaned into the city's double entendre name with taglines such as show us your Regina in the city that rhymes with fun. <laughs> Everyone will be coming on my face. Uh, some residents said it was immature and belittling the women, and it is. They sex with a dead thing. Well, no, 
But anyway, uh, finger bang a girl with a corpse hand. I mean, that as long as she's into it, I expose it's okay. Um, let's jacket or something. Yeah, let's let's jacket or something is right. Uh, experience uh, Regina apologized on Sunday, saying the rebrand crossed a line and created negative impact. Afraid of vaginas. Quote, uh, I want to start by apologizing on behalf of myself and our team for the negative impact we created with elements of our recent brand launch, said Tim Reed of Experience Regina in a statement. Experience I think going in the spank bank. Jesus Christ, you are going in the spank bank. Are you almost done? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Holy shit. What are you doing around here? <laughs> I'm getting loopy and delirious and I just keep hitting buttons. Holy shit. Uh and in a bid to clown the storm, Regina Mayor Sandra Masters, who originally was in support of the rebrand, will hold a news conference on Wednesday. Local businesses that added to the new slogans to merchandise have also apologized and removed the products. Uh, quote, I want to express how incredibly disappointed and appalled I am with the sexist messaging of the new experience. Regina, says Cheryl Standacook, uh, Ward 1 City Council. So, uh, not good. Not good for uh, experience, Regina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like the I'd rather be in Virginia t-shirts that sold really well, and then they had to rethink about that. Yeah, they're like, uh, I don't know if we we're supposed to do things like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, speaking of how we should probably not be doing things, let's just pull the chain on this and call yeah, it Yeah, please, can we go? Yeah, I'm going to play the Ending Legion promo, and then after that, on the Pirate Radio Edit, we're going to have the cramps with one of my favorite songs of theirs, and I Ain't Nothing But a Gore Hound, right after this. If you enjoyed this show, then make sure you check out the other great shows on the Legion Podcast Network, like Cinema PsyOps, Cinema Beef, Devour the Podcasts, Duncan and Bo Come Correct, Exploding Heads Horror Movie Podcast, Friday the 13th, Get Slayed, The Hell Ming Power Hour, Hello, This is the Doom Show, Hero Hero Ghost Show, Kill the Cast, Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space, Jerry Hates Action, Legion After Dark, Metal Health, Obsessive Cinema, Discourse, Pick 6 Movies, The Podcast by the Cemetery, The Podcast on Haunted Hill, The Psycho Semantic Podcast, Rick Radio, House of Wax, Dude Looks Like the 80s, Rabbit and Red Radio, The Shadecast, Short Bus Cinema, Two Drink Minimum Commentaries, The VD Clinic, Who Will Survive Horror Podcast, and Which Versus the Doomsday Clock. With such a widespread of shows, there is guaranteed to be a niche for you to fall in love with. Horror, politics, movies, books, sex, music, commentaries, health, video games, kaiju, action, news, comedy, and opinions that would most likely get you killed in some parts of the world. We are proud to bring you some of the best podcasting in the world. Check us out at www.legionpodcast.com, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and any other dark corner of the internet where podcasts can be found.
so that is the cramps with I Ain't Nothing But a Gore Hound, which, yeah, that's kind of my theme song. That's my main ringtone on my phone when somebody I don't know calls me that ring. It's at the ring ice. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of dread hearing it as my ringtone these days because that means it's probably a telemarketer. Yeah, that's not obviously what you want at the end of the day, but hey, it is what it is. Am I right? There are ways to get off those lists. You just have to look up how to do it. And, you know, maybe eventually you can get cleared out, but whatever. <laughs> Literally, you have to care. And I just never did. <laughs> if you'd like to find any of the instances previously in the 399 past episodes of Cinema PsyOps where Matt actually gave a care, you might be able to locate that at legionpodcast.com forward slash cinema dash psyops dash podcast. No, no, they'll never find it. There's also the Legion Discord chat where you may also find the fucks or the field upon which fucks are grown is barren. You may see, maybe they exist, maybe they don't. But in the Legion Discord chat, you'll at least be able to talk about pop culture in a safe place where people are mutually respectful of your opinion. They're not respectful at all. They're going to mock you and it's bad. (laughs) That is not true, Matt. is an asshole. That is true. I am one of those, yes. Anyway, let's do the breakdown of the memes and get Matt out of here before he does more damage to Legion's Discord chat. (laughs) The memes are first posted to Cinema underscore PsyOps on Instagram and then shared to the Facebook page Cinema PsyOps and then to my main page Court PsyOps and then to the group of Cinema PsyOps. That's how you get the memes, folks. And if you're in one of the groups that I actually post to, uh, be nice. Stop being a dick every time I post in the group, man. Like, uh, are they being dicks now? In some groups, yeah. They're like, not not the people that run it. Just people in the groups are like being dicks about a meme. Like, it's a fucking meme. It's a joke, man. What's the fuck's your problem? Well, while you're out there trying to find out what the fuck your problem is, (laughs) kick the fuck out of this week and make it your bed. Okay, cool, cool. All right, and uh, that worked, huh? Just reusing the same link. It's if I keep the meeting open. I think it gets a new idea every time I open it. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm back in, so. All right, well, that's good to know. That way, uh, I figured as much because the meeting, you know, if the meeting is closed, you're not going to get back in. <laughs> yeah. And we're not the member of the same organization, and it's not like a standing meeting. Maybe I'll try and see if I can create a standing Zoom meeting so we can always just rejoin it. Oh, pretty standard. It's true. Yeah. I'm sure there's a way to do it. I just, I, I use Zoom very seldomly. So are you recording on your side? Yet? Yeah. Uh, 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 let me see if I need permission yet. Oh, again? Yeah. Wow. That's weird. It's the same meeting. That's oh, because you left, I guess, maybe. Yeah. All right. Well, that doesn't, you know, if I'm going to have to do that every time, then I might as well just send you a link every day or every time you <laughs> record. Why even have a standing meeting? All right. You're ready. All right. Recording in progress. One, two, three. All right. Let's go. <laughs> All right, and I'm just going to roll right in. So here we go. Uh, you're going to have to wait. I don't my phone's wanna. being a dick. 
I don't wanna. No one cares what you want. I don't wanna wait. Well, I mean, you gotta. I don't wanna. No one cares what you want, boy. <laughs> I don't wanna. Goddamn, we're sick. Seriously, is that bad? Uh, not anymore. I, I got it. Uh- some groups yeah they're like not not the people that run it just people in the groups are like being dicks about a meme like it's a fucking meme it's a joke man what what the fuck's your problem while you're out there trying to find out what the fuck your problem is (laughs) kick the fuck out of this week and make it your bitch you can stop recording whenever dude oh all right (laughs) recording stopped